Hello and welcome to the Alcohol Alert, brought to you by the Institute of Alcohol Studies. On this month's podcast, we spoke to IS's Chief Executive, Dr. Catherine Severi, about the charity's next three-year strategy. We also spoke to Dr. Courtney McNamara, lecturer in public health at Newcastle University, about the public health risks of the excitingly titled Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP. Discussing IS's upcoming three-year strategy first, we asked Dr. Severi what she is especially proud of over the last three years. Well, I'm incredibly proud of how resilient and agile my team were during the pandemic. Like most organisations, we were faced with significant upheaval and challenges as we transitioned to working remotely. Once we'd got over the technical hiccups, like most organisations of working on Zoom and Teams, everybody made that transition seamless and were incredibly supportive. And for that, I'm really proud and grateful. And in fact, we had one of our most productive years in terms of output in 2020. During the last three years, we've produced some really important reports I think that we've demonstrated we can respond to important emerging issues. So, for example, the COVID hangover report, which looked at how the shifted shifts in drinking patterns might affect um, the NHS longer term, was an incredibly useful piece of research and still is to this day. Also, the series on alcohol and sustainability showing how some of our issues overlap with issues around climate change extremely important and I'm really glad that we were able to veer into a more broader subject area than just public health during this time. I'm also very proud that we were able to support a number of very talented early career researchers via the small grant scheme and I'm very pleased that in the next strategy we're going to be continuing that small grant scheme to try and support innovation and maintain interest amongst early career researchers in alcohol policy relevant research. Brilliant, yeah, I think the, the continuation of the scheme into the next three years clearly shows the, the impact it's had and uh, I think the feedback that IS has received from those early career researchers has been really positive. So we're embarking now into the next three years of IS's um, work, the next three years strategy. What is the challenge for IS um, over the next few years? Well, our main focus is going to be on building support for action to address the stark inequalities that are linked to alcohol. So we've known for a long time now that alcohol harms are concentrated in the lowest socioeconomic groups. However, in the wake of the pandemic, with alcohol-related deaths at an all-time high, I think that now is more important than ever to act. And this issue, in our opinion, should be the number one priority of any government of the day. So we recognise that inequity is entrenched across the entire alcohol policy process with a significant imbalance of power at the decision-making table due to the undue influence of commercial interests. So one of our biggest challenges is going to be to try and ensure that public health is prioritised over private profits to support policies that will lead to healthier, safer and more equal communities. Why do you think there has been um, political inertia over the last few years in terms of the prevention agenda? I think that there's probably a number of factors in that. I think that policy distraction with attention drawn into issues such as the pandemic, the emerging conflict in Ukraine, which has led to a significant cost of living crisis, um, has taken attention away from some of the other pressing public health matters. But I think we can't deny that 
alcohol industry bodies do have significant influence over government decisions. We've seen a number of evidenced reports of such activities leading to policy substitution, distraction, delay, dilution. Um, and I think that this is one of the issues that we want to address in our forthcoming strategy to really take a proper look at this balance of power and try and ensure transparency and accountability in decisions and ensure that decisions are led by evidence. So you mentioned evidenced uh, policies and evidenced research. How have alcohol control policies been shown to reduce health inequality? Well, given that rates of alcohol harm are higher amongst lower socioeconomic groups, most policies that are proven to reduce alcohol harm will have a greater benefit to those groups and therefore be one step in the journey to reducing inequalities. So, for example, minimum unit pricing in Scotland has been linked to a 13% reduction in alcohol-specific deaths, with the greatest reduction in deaths in the four most socio-economically deprived area-based deciles. We also know that alcohol treatment can contribute to improvements in health, employment and child poverty. So what we need is a comprehensive alcohol strategy that includes prevention and treatment measures, which will benefit deprived groups the most. In terms of a comprehensive alcohol strategy, there was obviously one in 2012 um, where I think the Health um, Foundation found that basically none of the policies in the 2012 alcohol strategy were implemented. Um, as the government hasn't, as the government hasn't committed to another, and we're coming up to a general election, what do you anticipate the likelihood of? Uh, a, a comprehensive strategy being implemented over the next few years is? Well, unfortunately, I think the likelihood of a new alcohol strategy between now and a general election is extremely slim. We have just seen a very impactful report from the Public Accounts Committee published this month, implying, recommending that the Department of Health and Social Care, um, in the absence of a strategy, set some clear measures and indicators for how they plan to address the ever-increasing burden of alcohol harm on the health service and wider social sector. I think that that's probably um, a, the best action that we will be able to see from the current government. I think a new government that's formed following the general election should make tackling alcohol harm and introducing meaningful evidence-based prevention measures should be a very high priority because we have seen a real absence of action in the last decade whereas alcohol harm rates are rising in the wake of the pandemic in particular so i would like to see an incoming government recognize the urgency um, on this issue and take action one of the strategies we can have more impact on is our own strategy obviously so what projects are you most looking forward to during IIS's next three-year strategy period? Well, with our focus being on inequalities, I'm looking forward to supporting other like-minded organisations to talk about alcohol and inequalities. So we're looking to create guidelines for language that we use to help raise awareness of this very important issue, but also avoid any terms that might entrench stigma. Now, I confess that I'm also looking forward to receiving and developing these guidelines because sometimes I find myself unsure about how best to describe some of these terms, especially in media interviews where you're under pressure and you're trying to make messages really succinct and powerful. 
I'm also looking forward to our forthcoming webinar that's taking place next month on how the cost of living crisis is affecting alcohol harm. So I think these are really important conversations for us to be having right now and I'm really delighted that IES is able to facilitate and lead on some of these issues. Now later on in the year I'm really looking forward to working with some of our closest expert partners to develop some independent principles of interacting with alcohol industry groups. I think that this is going to be a really important initiative given, as I've mentioned, alcohol industry's influence over the policy process has been identified as a really significant barrier to progress in this space. So I'm hoping that these principles will take us one step closer to having a fairer system that values transparency, accountability and evidence in decisions that's able to mitigate risks of conflicts of interest. Let's hear from Dr McNamara now about why the UK joining the CPTPP trade deal could be a risk to public health. So the the CPTPP, um, besides being a a tongue twister, um, is a a free trade agreement that involves 11 countries located around the Pacific Ocean. So countries like Canada, Japan, Australia, Mexico, Malaysia, um, some others, and of course now the UK. Now, it's important to note that the CPTPP isn't a new free trade agreement. Um, It actually came into force in 2018. And because it was already agreed to, the UK actually had very little negotiating room coming into the agreement. So it basically needed needed to accept all the rules that the other countries had already come to agree to. The CPTPP became an important policy objective for the UK government uh, after American President uh, Joe Biden pushed a potential free trade agreement between the UK and the US to the back burner. Now, some listeners might remember discussions around a potential UK-US free trade agreement Um, because there was a lot of public worry about some of the consequences of signing an agreement with the U.S. Worries about uh, supermarket shelves being flooded with chlorinated chicken, um, the NHS being bought up by these huge U.S. healthcare conglomerates. But what many people don't realize is that the CPTPP is based on texts from an earlier agreement called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which basically was drafted by the U.S., Um, And so the CPTPP contains many of the same provisions or rules that made a UK-US agreement so controversial from the perspective of public health. So you wrote a recent uh, analysis in the BMJ where you really highlight that public health risk. How could the deal risk public health regarding industry litigation? This This is a really important question. So the the CPTPP, one of the the main rules that it says that countries must follow is giving this special legal right uh, to foreign corporations to sue governments whenever they think that a government regulation has undermined their profits. This special legal right is provided through what's known as Investor State Dispute Settlement or ISDS system. And I really think that there are two main ways that ISDS can can generate risks to public health. First, foreign investors have often used this system to challenge a wide range of public health regulations. So listeners might remember when Philip Morris uh, brought an ISDS claim against the government of Australia when the government proposed tobacco plate packaging. So the government had proposed to remove logos and brand images from tobacco products 
as a way of combating tobacco consumption. Now, the ISDS court actually ruled in Australia's favor, um, but Australia spent the equivalent of 13 million pounds defending this claim. And it was only awarded half of this from Philip Morris um, in cost and legal fees. So here the idea is that if these legal challenges are so expensive, um, and they've been even higher than, than this 13 million in the Australian case, then policymakers might be unwilling to consider public health measures that could lead to these types of legal proceedings. So um, this is something we call policy chill. Now, the second way I think this sort of ISDS system can impact public health, it's a bit more indirect. But here the idea is that these sorts of ISD, ISDS cases drain public revenues. Um, and of course, this is then taking money away from what could have otherwise been spent on health promoting policies or healthcare services. Here, at least, there is one slightly encouraging point, which is that it looks as though the government has excluded ISDS with Australia and New Zealand. So that means that foreign investors in Australia and New Zealand won't be able to use this system to sue the, U the UK government. But of course, this still leaves the government open to legal claims from foreign investors in the, in the other nine countries. I think the, uh, the inclusion of these ISDS mechanisms by their, very, by their very nature legitimize corporate interests. And that this elevation of corporate actors, uh, of course, translates in, into increased power that these industries can deploy in different ways to entrench their policy preferences, for example, through political lobbying. So you mentioned that the UK has ruled out the use of ISDS with Australia and New Zealand. What's the reason for that? And why haven't they done that across the board for all of the countries involved in the uh, CPTPP? Yeah, so ISDS is, is going a bit out of fashion um, these days. So even the U.S. is using less ISDS in, in its trade with other countries, limiting how ISDS provisions, how they use them in, in agreements that they're negotiating. Australia and New Zealand had already excluded ISDS um, between themselves with the CPTPP. So my feeling is that the the push to exclude ISDS between Australia and the UK and New Zealand and the UK was probably, it was probably something that the Australian and New Zealand governments pushed for more than anything else. That's really interesting. I also read that you um, kind of compared the system to how the World Trade Organization is set up and how with the WTO only states can initiate proceedings against other states. It can't be company initiating legal proceedings against other states. Yeah, absolutely. So through the WTO, only states can bring sort of these dispute cases against other states. And even with that, I, I mean, think there was a publication maybe last year which showed that that is still that the WTO is still used as a forum to to prevent public health measures, particularly with alcohol labeling, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, corporate industries can still lobby their government to bring a case against another government. And so that's still happening. So this is a it's an issue that's not unique to, to ISDS. It's even in the in case of WTO dispute settlement provisions as well. There's also an interesting debate ongoing in Ireland at the moment, which I'm sure you're aware of, regarding health warnings on alcohol labels, which is part of their Public Health Alcohol Act 2018. And um, what we've seen even this week is the alcohol lobby submitting complaints to the European Commission 
calling on them to uh, issue an infringement procedure because uh, they're claiming that labeling doesn't comply with EU law. So it's really clear that given the opportunity, private industry will do what they can to restrict uh, progression in public health policy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's supported by uh, um, a large literature base in public health research as well. So how much does the UK government expect to bring into the UK economy um, via the deal? Yeah, so this is a really important and interesting question as well, because governments typically sell free trade agreements to the public on the basis that it will or that they will increase economic growth and that this growth will trickle down to benefit everyone. Um, and the UK is no different uh, in this regard. The government was no different in this regard um, because in joining the CPTPP, it hopes to boost trade. It hopes to increase economic growth, increase employment opportunities. Um, but there's a really big question mark over how much the UK will actually gain from joining the CPTPP. So based on, on the government's own estimates, uh, the agreement will increase the country's GDP by no more than 0.08%. Now, in analyses of other free trade agreements, economists have characterized changes of this magnitude as little more than rounding errors. And part of the reason this figure is so low is because the UK already trades quite a lot with um, many of the CPTPP countries. And more problematically, I think, is this idea that these calculations don't even take into account the implementation costs of joining the agreement. So we just talked about some of the high costs with relation to ISDS. And of course, these calculations, already low, don't take those costs um, into account. I also saw um, in your analysis that the UK drinks and tobacco industries are set to do best out of the deal. Um, is there a risk that uh, this will lead to an increase in the sale and consumption of both of those products, alcohol and tobacco, and therefore an obvious risk of increased harm and exacerbation of health inequalities? Yeah, so that's right. The the UK government in their analyses has said that the, the beverages and the tobacco, tobacco sectors are expected um, to be some of the main winners of the deal. Um, my understanding is that the agreement, for example, will gradually remove a really high tax on Scottish whiskey exports to Malaysia. So currently, I think the tax is around the export tax is around 80%. So you can imagine that when this tax is reduced, this, of course, will lower prices and might increase consumption and, and therefore also increase harm. And I think here there's another way to think about how increased sales in alcohol and tobacco can contribute to, to worse public health and potentially increased health inequalities. And here the idea is that, again, any sort of win or increased sales or increased profit for the alcohol and tobacco industry increases the power of these commercial actors. And again, with this increased power comes increased influence. Um, and as I mentioned in relation to, to, to ISDS, anytime that the ability of these industries to support their interests, their interests and their policy preferences is strengthened, of course, can cause risks to public health. Interesting, because that's a sort of an offloading of harm onto other countries and exporting of harm. It makes me sort of think of the, the Scottish government trying to implement marketing restrictions in, in the country and how the Scotch Whiskey Association kicked off about it. However, about 99% of Scotch whiskey produced in, in Scotland is um, exported, so it wouldn't, wouldn't be affected by marketing 
um, restrictions in Scotland. It, it's funny that we sort of think about these things in very sort of nationalistic ways, where actually it's it's still really important to think about how um, change in pricing and reduction in duties in, in places like Malaysia will almost certainly lead to increased harm in those countries as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important point. Um, it's it's true that often these discussions around free trade agreements are are usually confined to what's happening in the domestic sphere. And I think, as you say, it's really important to think about what some of these global impacts might be. Of course, in, in addition to, to exporting public health harms, like increased consumption of alcohol, we can think of how an agreement like this might increase fossil fuel use or, or, or pollution. Um, so I think that point you make is really important. You mentioned in your analysis as well that um, a health impact assessment wasn't undertaken by the UK government um, in terms of the trade deal. What would a health impact assessment of the deal look um, look at and what would it potentially help highlight? A health impact assessment is a well-established tool in public health that's basically used to identify potential risks and potential benefits to health. Here, it's worth noting that there may be ways that the CPTPP benefits some populations. And here, I'm just saying that being critical of free trade agreements um, in some of the ways that we've we've talked about doesn't mean, for instance, that I'm anti-trade. Trade, of course, can produce many benefits to societies, um, but we do need to take stock of both what these benefits look like um, and also what some of the risks to health are. And again, this is where HIA comes in. So what does HIA do? Um, it collects input from all sorts of different stakeholders. So stakeholders like health experts, um, government policymakers, industry stakeholders, and it interviews them and has discussions with them uh, to identify potential health effects. Then this information is used to suggest how potential benefits could be supported and to recommend potential mitigation strategies. My co-authors in this BMJ article and I, we knew that it was very unlikely that the government would undertake an HIA. Um, so last fall, we actually started an HIA that specifically looks at what the health impacts might be on whales. Um, so we're still wrapping this work up and the final report will likely be released in July. But basically, we found some potential positives related to economic impacts. Um, and some potential potential negative impacts. So, for example, one provision in the CPTPP says that whenever the government wants to introduce a new regulation, it needs to involve, quote, interested parties. Now, when you look at the definition of interested parties in the CPTPP, this includes foreign investors. So this doesn't give corporations veto power over new regulations, but it does, again, create new opportunities for them to influence public health measures, raising, again, this concern of policy chill. So in the HAA, we look at things like this. We take things like this into account, um, in addition to some of the other issues we've already spoken about. And without yet being able to go in, in, into some of the details of what we've found, um, we have found, again, both positive and negatives that will affect different populations differently um, with ways that we think will potentially widen health inequalities. In response to the publication, which was externally peer-reviewed, the Department for Business and Trade said the analysis published by the BMJ is false and dangerous and should be immediately disregarded. 
They also denied that the deal would hinder our right to regulate in the public interest and said this was a right recognised in international law. That is all for this month. Thank you for listening and we hope you can join us in next month's podcast.